Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your special revelation, your word, which has been preserved for us in 2017, sometimes through astonishing ways. We thank you that we have it, that we can gather in a public building like we are today and open it together and hear the Spirit speaking through the word and learn from you. And that is our prayer, Lord. Not to us, not to us give glory, but to you, uh, for you are due all honor, glory, power, and authority. So we pray that this time would be pleasing to you as we go to your word, and may your spirit encourage, exhort, bring comfort, bring challenge, whatever it is your pleasure to do this morning in our midst. We pray in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Hebrew people were now on the cusp of leaving Egypt after their long years of brutal treatment under Pharaoh. The Hebrew people were about to begin their long journey toward the land that had been promised to their ancestors. The people now found themselves living in the seam between life in Egypt and a life of freedom. And the main event that occupied them in their seam moment, just before they left Egypt, was Passover. There's a biblical scholar named William Dumbrell who has described the Passover as a supreme judgment on one hand, but also a great deliverance on the other hand. Passover is a severe judgment because part and parcel with Passover is Yahweh's destruction of the firstborn in Egypt. But Passover is also a great deliverance, of course, because part and parcel with Passover is the sparing of the Hebrew firstborn from the plague of death. And then, of course, we have the subsequent exodus out of the land of Egypt. So once again, as we start, Passover is a great deliverance for Israel, but simultaneously, Passover is also a supreme judgment on Egypt. What we want to do this morning is to simply walk through the first 13 verses of Exodus 12 that were read for us earlier in the service. This is where the first and only true Passover is prescribed and described. And I say that Exodus 12 describes the only true Passover because the rite itself was meant for Israel while they were in Egypt. Every Passover celebration since the Exodus 12 Passover has been simply a recollection or a memorialization of the one and only true Passover that happened while they were in Egypt. Verses 1 and 2 give us the where and when of Passover. I hope you have your Bible open to Exodus 12. Verse 1 says that Yahweh spoke to Moses and his brother Aaron, where? In the land of Egypt. That is, Yahweh gave his Torah his instructions concerning Passover, not at Mount Sinai, interestingly enough, 
but in Egypt, which tells us that not all Torah, not all of God's law was given at Sinai. And Moses and Aaron also here will carry out God's instruction concerning Passover in the land of Egypt, just prior to their journey out of Egypt. So that's the where of Passover. It's in Egypt. We need to understand that. And then Exodus 12:2, the when. Notice this. In Exodus 12:2, Yahweh says to the brothers, "This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you." What's happening here? Well, effectively, Yahweh was setting in place a brand new calendar. We don't know a whole lot about the calendar that Israel had used prior to this moment, but whatever that calendar looked like, now, said Yahweh, it was obsolete. A new calendar was being put into effect by Yahweh himself. Now, we do know that this first month of the year that Yahweh mentions here in the new calendar, this is the month of Abib which later became to, came to be called Nisan. So Abib, or Nisan, in the Jewish calendar, spans March and April, right now, this time of the year. It's the springtime month. In the springtime, of course, we have all of the fresh life. I am so looking forward to that over these major dumps of snow here in Montreal. We have all the fresh life after the long winter months. Yahweh here was going to release his people into their new life in the springtime, after their long centuries of winter bondage in Egypt. The Passover moment was, in fact, the springtime of their very existence as a nation. This was a Genesis moment of being recreated for purposes of future service to Yahweh. Well, let's venture forward to verse 3. Now, back in the prequel to Exodus, we've talked about the prequel in sermons past, so in other words, back in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 3, interestingly enough, there in Genesis 12, 3, Yahweh had promised Abram that in Abram's descendants, a great nation would arise. Now, it would seem in Exodus 12.3 that we have another indication here in the text that Genesis 12.3 is being fulfilled. The Lord is fulfilling it. Notice in Exodus 12.3 that for the first time in the Bible, the descendants of Abraham are called an idah in Hebrew, a congregation. It's very important. Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron, Tell all the congregation, it's the first time they're called that in scripture, all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this springtime month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. What do congregations do? They unite around a common purpose of worship. And that's exactly what Yahweh is asking the congregation of Israel to do here in Exodus 12.3. On the tenth day of the first month, the men of the congregation, notice, were to take 
something. Namely, they were to take a lamb. Now, here we have to recall that the tenth and final plague on Egypt is about to unfold. And whereas in the previous nine plagues, the people of Israel had played a relatively passive role, that is, they had more or less stood by watching as Yahweh had executed his plagues on Egypt, now, here at Exodus 12.3, the people are being commanded to play a more active part as the tenth plague is about to start. The people are now commanded by God to respond to him with action. If Israel wanted their firstborn children to be spared this coming plague, action was required on their part. Noah, in his time, would have perished if he had sat back passively and not built the ark. Noah had to act in order to be spared, and so it is now with Israel at the time of the first Passover. Action was required if they desired to enjoy future days with their firstborn. The life of faith is not a passive life. Amen? Yes, we listen to God and we pray that he will act. Of course we do that. But like David, sometimes we also have to strap on a sword and pick up stones and actively fight our horizontal battles on the ground. Amen? While we're praying for firepower from heaven to come down and guarantee the victory. Each man here was to act, to take a lamb. Now, what's interesting, and I think instructive here, is that in the famous story of Genesis 22, when Abraham offers his only son, Isaac, some of us know it well, he offers Isaac up to be sacrificed, Abraham, in Genesis 22.8, expresses there his confidence that God would provide a lamb. A lamb that would serve in that situation as a stand-in, as a substitute sacrifice for his son Isaac. And the word lamb in Genesis 22.8 is the Hebrew word seh, which is the same word that we have in our passage in Exodus 12.3. The people at the first and true Passover were to take a seh, a lamb, and this lamb would act in the Passover as a stand-in, as a substitute for the firstborn of Israel. Now let's keep going forward here. What really stands out in 12.3 and 12.4, notice this. Let's get our eyes on the text. What really stands out is the family orientation of Passover. The family orientation. The lamb was to be taken according to the father's houses, first of all. So a single animal was to be taken and used for each subunit of a tribe. At this point in ancient history, a father's house or a subunit of a tribe would be made up of a man, his wife, their unmarried daughters... 
and also their sons, whether married or unmarried, along with any wives of those sons and their own unmarried children. These family units, said Yahweh, were now to gather together in homes to consume the lamb together. This was a family event, Passover, the original Passover. These people were about to undertake, we have to remember, an arduous, sometimes scary, lengthy journey out of Egypt toward the Promised Land. Yahweh, in his care, instituted Passover as a time to strengthen family bonds, to unify families together before they went out on the journey. And then look at Exodus 12.4. Notice here how the family language just continues and even expands out so that even neighbors are now drawn into the lamb feast. Yahweh says, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take, according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So if your family was small, say, and you realized that there was just no way uh, that, the, that the whole lamb could be eaten by your small family in a single evening as Yahweh wanted it to be eaten, then at that point you were to say, okay, let's invite the neighbors over. Neighbors would help finish the lamb. So just notice here, it's beautiful, this neighborly family kinship aspect to the Passover feast. And then beginning at verse 5, we have Yahweh describing now, this gets juicy and interesting, he describes the particulars or the requirements concerning each lamb. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, perhaps what is centrally important here in verse 5 is that description. Notice it, without blemish. The chosen lambs were to be without blemish. The Hebrew word here that translates into English as without blemish is the word tamim, which at its most basic level means this, whole, complete, Perfect. As commentator John McKay says, in the context of Exodus 12.5, the animals were not to have any physical maladies or blemishes that would thus render them inappropriate to offer to the Lord whose work, ways, knowledge, and law, we might add, are all described in various places of the Old Testament as tamim, as perfect, without blemish. The Lord's work is tamim, perfect, according to Deuteronomy 32.4. And his way is tamim, or perfect, according to 2 Samuel 22.31. And his knowledge and law are tamim, perfect, according to Job 37.16 and Psalm 19.7. So then the one who is himself tamim demands offerings that are tamim, whole, perfect, without blemish. 
it stands to reason. Only the best is to be offered to God. Let's go forward to verse 6. The people are told now that they must keep the lamb that was taken on the 10th day until the 14th day. Interestingly enough, we're not entirely sure why the Passover lambs were to be kept from day 10 until day 14 when they were slaughtered. Some have argued that it's because these four days allowed a person to check for blemishes, to make sure there were no blemishes. Other people have said, well, the whole lamb is going to be roasted, the entrails and everything. Four days would give you a time to sort of control the diet of the lamb before it's roasted. So there's, there's different opinions on why that is. But the crucial thing is what happened on the 14th day. The end of verse 6 says this, that on day 14, notice, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel was to kill their lambs at twilight. Now notice this, the verb that is translated in English as kill in the text is the Hebrew verb shahat. Over half the uses of this particular verb in the Old Testament are found in the context of sacrifice. It has been argued effectively that the slain lamb at Passover was a sacrificial lamb. And in verse 27 of this very chapter, it confirms to us that Passover was sacrificial in character. Exodus 12:27. These Passover lambs would be sacrificed on behalf of the Hebrew people. The lambs would act as substitutionary sacrifices for the firstborn of Israel. Now, we might rightly ask a good question here. We know that the tenth plague that's coming, just after all of this detailed instruction that we get to Israel concerning Passover, the tenth plague is going to come, and it is the death of the firstborn in Egypt. The question is, why did Yahweh not simply go directly from plague nine to that tenth plague on the Egyptian firstborn? I mean, why not just go from Exodus 10.29, which is the tail end of plague nine, directly to Exodus 12.29? where the tenth plague is finally executed. Why all this detailed stuff in between about Passover for Israel? Why Exodus 11 and most of Exodus 12, where we have all this instruction about Passover, why all of this before we get to the tenth plague on Egypt? Why, Yahweh, did you not just take direct aim, if this was what you wanted to do, on the Egyptian firstborn? And the answer is, that Israel was in just as much danger as Egypt at this point in her history. Israel was under a divine death sentence here, as much as Egypt was. If not for Passover, if not for all the detailed Passover instructions and then the carrying out of those instructions to the letter, 
Israel also faced the horror of God's judgment. Well, how can you say that, Dunbar? I say that because of Joshua 24:14 and Ezekiel 20 verses 7 and 8, both of which tell us very clearly that the people of Israel, even while they lived in Egypt, were tangled up in idolatry. So if not for the shed blood of the substitutionary Passover lamb, Israel, for her unfaithfulness to Yahweh while in Egypt, would face the same wrath of Yahweh that was about to come on Egypt. Passover instructions and the Passover lamb, we need to understand, were a sheer grace for wayward Israel. Back to the text. Exodus 12:7 has Yahweh giving commands concerning the blood, the blood of the lamb. The blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb was to be taken and smeared on the two doorposts and on the lintel of each Hebrew home. Now notice this, God has not yet said anything about the roasting of the lamb and the eating of the lamb. That comes a little later, but first things first. The blood was the first thing. The blood and what it signified were of such monumental importance that it was administered here before any further activity took place. Now, I think there are at least five things going on with the blood of the Passover lamb. Very quickly. First, as Old Testament history unfolds, what we see is that the manipulation and use of blood is ordinarily reserved for priests. It's their domain. Priests are the ones who apply blood. The fact that Exodus 12.6 has ordinary Israelites sacrificing lambs like priests, remember the word sacrifice is specifically used, the fact that we have that in Exodus 12.6 and then in Exodus 12.7 we have them making application of the blood of those lambs like priests. All of, all of this suggests to us that Moses, as he writes Exodus, probably wants us to understand these common Hebrew people at the first Passover as priests. Even before the advent of formal priesthood in Israel, which is going to come way later in Exodus. In other words, these Hebrews here at the first Passover in Egypt, what are they doing? They are taking back, regaining the priestly role that Adam had forfeited in the garden by his sin. They, Adam was supposed to be a priest. It's clear if you read the text carefully in Genesis 1 and 2. He forfeited his role by his sins. So the people here are doing what? They are keeping creation, as Adam was supposed to do, keeping lambs. They are sacrificing lambs like priests, and they are applying the blood of the lamb like priests. They are behaving like priests behave. Secondly, the application of the blood on your doorpost was a symbol of faith. 
by smearing blood onto your doorframe, you were, in effect, proclaiming your trust in the word of Yahweh and in Yahweh himself. The outward sign of the blood on your doorframe spoke of the inward reality of faith. And then the third thing that I think may be going on here with the blood of the Passover lamb can be seen if we jump down to Exodus 12.22, just for a moment. Exodus 12.22 tells us that a bunch of hyssop served as a kind of paintbrush to apply the blood to the door frames. Hyssop. In several verses of Leviticus 14 and also a couple of verses in Numbers 19, hyssop is associated specifically with ritual purification. So painting blood onto the door frames by use of hyssop may also indicate here that a purification of each home was being effected. Fourth, The blood of the Passover lamb had what we call fancy, uh, as my pastoral mentor used to call a $500 word. Uh, It had what we call an apotropaic (laughs) nature or character. In other words, the blood on the doorframe served the function, it's basically what apotropaic means, of warding off the destroyer, turning the destroyer away. When the destroying angel saw the blood on the door frames of Hebrew homes, he would be turned away, warded off, and the people inside the homes would thereby be protected from the plague. The apotropaic or warding off character of the lamb's blood. But then the fifth and final significance of the lamb's blood that I think maybe one of the primary significance is simply this. The presence of the blood on the doorposts and the lintel meant that a life had been laid down. The blood was really an advertisement that a life had been offered up, and that for a very specific purpose. The lamb was slain in order that life might continue for the firstborn inside each home. The death of the Passover lamb was substitutionary in nature. The lamb died sacrificially in place of the firstborn sons of Israel. So again, five things, just to summarize, five things that were happening with the blood of the Passover lamb, at least five things. Priesthood, faith, purification, protection, and a life laid down in substitution. Now, as we move to Exodus 12.8, I need to tell you, this verse just might become my life verse. Because I love me some barbecue. They shall eat the flesh of the lamb that night, roasted on the fire. Yes, Lord. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Now, notice carefully, friends, that Yahweh, God of heaven and earth, commands a barbecue complete with side dishes (laughs) in this seam moment right before the people move away from Egypt. 
I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Roasting the lamb over the fire was the quickest route to delicious meat. No wasted time trying to find water in this ancient Near Eastern environment and trying to find vessels to boil the water and then boil the meat. No unnecessary cleanup. The fat from the animal would simply just drip down into the fire. And in addition to the barbecued lamb, again, we notice that God commands these two side dishes, unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Unleavened bread was also a quick prep. No time necessary to leaven the bread. You get the feeling already here that Yahweh was after efficiency and haste with this meal. After all, the people are on the cusp of moving away from Egypt and going toward the promised land. There's a commentator named Robin Rutledge who has also noted another possible significance in the unleavened bread of Passover, and that is this, that the unleavened bread symbolized newness, a fresh start. Rutledge writes this, listen to this. He says, in ancient times, the leaven that caused bread to rise was prepared by leaving dough lightened by grape and other juices in a warm place to ferment. But because this process took several days and because it was seen as something of a mystery, old leaven was preserved and added to successive batches of dough. The leaven, he says, thus provided a link with the past. And the absence of leaven symbolized a break from the past and the desire for a new beginning. Close quote. The Hebrew people were living in the seam between Egypt and a brand new day, a brand new start. Perhaps the unleavened bread symbolized this fresh start. And then the bitter herbs. What are these? Probably we're to understand these as endives, we think, and chicory, or some sort of bitter lettuce, possibly. What's interesting here is that the Hebrew word that's translated bitter herbs has root letters that occur only one other time in the book of Exodus. It's very interesting. And that's at chapter 1, verse 14, where we have a description of Hebrew life under the oppression of Egypt. And the word is bitter. They lived a bitter experience there. So there seems to be a connection in the book of Exodus between bitter life in Egypt at 114 and the bitter herbs of Passover at 12.8. The bitter herbs of Passover, we think, were meant to be a perpetual reminder of the cruel service that the people had been forced to undertake while they lived under Pharaoh in Egypt. Well, in verses 9 through 11 of our passage, we have Yahweh describing now both the method of how do you prepare the lamb and also the manner in which the lamb is to be eaten. The method and the manner. The method of preparation is seen in verse 9. Do not eat any of it raw. Gross. Raw lamb? Yeah, Yahweh says, don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. This is the word of the Lord. 
its head with its legs and its inner parts. Roasting the lamb is going to ensure that the lamb is fully cooked. Notice the care of our God, even down to this aspect. He doesn't want anybody to become sick by eating undercooked or raw lamb. Roasting is also preferred here to boiling. Why is that? Well, because to boil the animal is going to mean that you're going to have to dissect it into smaller parts that can then be contained in cooking vessels. And Yahweh wants the animal whole. Why? Probably to symbolize the wholeness and the unity of the people as they gather in their families and their homes to emphasize the wholeness of the people before they get out and move toward the promised land. And besides, the whole idea of Passover is haste, right? To roast an animal over a fire is quicker, say, than cutting up the animal, drawing water from somewhere, boiling the water, putting the animal, it's quicker. Verse 10, we get a hint of the sacred nature of the lamb and its meat. Notice, Yahweh commands, and you shall let none of it remain. Oh, second day barbecued meat is so good, Lord. <laughs> you, shall not let, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. The Passover lamb was sacred. Any leftovers are to be burnt up instead of using them on the second day. And then we get to the manner of eating there in verse 11. So now the focus shifts from the lamb that's being eaten to the ones who are eating the lamb, the diners. Yahweh declares, in this manner you shall eat it. doesn't say anything about barbecue sauce here. In this manner you shall eat, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. Note that word. It, meaning the lamb, is the Lord's Pesach. In the original Hebrew, we're going to come back to that. Note here that the people eating the lamb were to dress themselves, how? In readiness to leave Egypt. Sandals on, staff in hand, belt fastened. Their tunics are to be tied at the waist, which is what you did when you were setting out on a journey. They were to come to the table prepared to set out on a long, arduous journey away from Egypt toward the land promised to Abraham. And note carefully again that God says, eat the lamb in haste. Now the Hebrew word here of that word that's translated haste in most of our English versions, it's a root that often conveys the idea of fear and trepidation. Fear and trepidation. The people were to eat the Passover lamb with a sense of fear and trepidation. As James Bruckner has noted, at the end of the day, this was not a celebratory feast. Why not? Well, because remember that as the people 
began to feast on the Passover lamb in the safety of their blood-marked homes, right outside their walls, human beings were dropping dead from the tenth plague in the dark. They ate the lamb with a sense of fear and trepidation. Bruckner says this was not a celebratory feast. The people were not to be indifferent to the suffering outside the walls of their homes, even the suffering of their enslavers. They should eat with the haste of alarm, he says, the haste of alarm, since their deliverance was purchased at such a cost of human and animal life. Imagine with me sitting down to eat the Passover lamb in haste, dressed and ready for a journey, while outside your door the Egyptian people are wailing and beating their breasts and tearing their garments, grief-stricken over the sudden, and it came on suddenly, the sudden loss of their firstborn. Listen, friends, the blood, say it with me, the blood was all that protected the Hebrews that night. Don Carson has reminded us that it wasn't the intensity or the magnitude of the faith of the Hebrew people that protected them. It was the blood of the Lamb. Just as it is for you and I this very day. The last part of verse 11 says, we'll get get to this now, that it, meaning the Lamb, it, the Lamb, is Yahweh's Pesach. And that word Pesach here in the Hebrew probably means protection more than it means Passover. I'll say that again. The word here in Hebrew probably means protection more than it means Passover. In fact, the word Passover in most English versions of the Bible in verse 11 has come to us from the Latin Vulgate way later in church history. But in the verses leading up to verse 11, what's being described there? What's being described in the verses that lead up to verse 11 is how God provided protection. For Israel, he gave a lamb that was to bleed and die, which would provide everything necessary for the protection of the people from the wrath of God. Verse 11 is talking about the lamb as Yahweh's protection. In the form of this slain lamb, (laughs) amen and hallelujah, God was providing all by himself protection for his people. We're going somewhere with this. (laughs) Now notice verse 12. Why did the people need this protection? It's right there in the verse. Because, said Yahweh, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Notice. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. 
the tenth plague would be an instance of proportional justice. Proportional justice. In the same measure that Egypt had tried to decimate every Israelite son by drowning them in the Nile, and in the same measure that Pharaoh had sought to retain for himself Yahweh's firstborn son, Israel, for Pharaoh's own egregious purposes in Pharaoh's own turf, In the same measure, so now the penalty would come on Pharaoh and Egypt in keeping with their crimes. Yahweh would now take the lives of every firstborn belonging to any and all classes, from the uttermost to the guttermost, doesn't matter, any and all classes of the Egyptians. And in so doing, Yahweh would also expose the bankruptcy of Egyptian belief. How? Notice carefully that Exodus 12.12 has Yahweh saying that firstborn beasts, as well as humans, would be the recipients of Yahweh's judgment. So the firstborn, then, of Egyptian bulls, of Egyptian cows, of Egyptian goats, jackals, lions, baboons, rams, Walter Kaiser notes that such beasts in Egypt were linked to divinity. They were linked to various Egyptian deities. When Yahweh would dispatch such beasts, says Kaiser, it would undoubtedly be interpreted as a direct blow to the gods of Egypt themselves. And our verse does go on to say that Yahweh would execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt, The Egyptians believed that their gods sustained life. To take life, as Yahweh was going to do in this final plague, would show who actually was in control of life and death. Yahweh is, and no one but him. Verse 13. I want you to notice my wedding ring here for a minute. Uh, Coming up on 22 years, married to my lovely wife. Thank you for being here today. (laughs) Uh, My wedding ring is a sign, isn't it, of a greater reality, which is my marriage. The wedding ring is not the marriage. The wedding ring is a sign, a symbol of the marriage. Similarly, the blood on the door frames of Hebrew homes was a symbol, a sign of a greater reality. The blood signified the trust in Yahweh of those who were in the homes. The greater reality. In verse 13, Yahweh says, The blood shall be a what? A sign for you. It's for the Israelites. On the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hallelujah. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood was a sign of a greater reality, namely that the people inside the homes trusted in Yahweh, God of heaven and earth. Though they be terrified, and some of them no doubt were, they trusted in Yahweh and marked their homes with the blood of the Lamb. 
Now, what we've just journeyed through is God's description of the first Passover feast. But to use Derek Tidball's imagery, all that we've just looked at in Exodus 12 is like the old manual typewriter. Do you remember the old manual typewriter? Clank, clank, ding. It's like the old manual typewriter when compared with the glorious 20 terabyte word processor that is Christ and his cross. Or to use Greg Beale's imagery, if Passover is the seed, Christ and his work is the glorious apple tree that comes from the seed. The point is, there's a magnificent amplification in the New Testament of what was only embryonic in the Old Testament Passover. Watch this. The Exodus, the Exodus was that time when the Hebrew people needed to be freed physically from captivity to Pharaoh. They needed to be freed from their exile in Egypt. Well, the New Testament describes a new exodus. A new exodus which, in which not just Hebrew people, not, not just one nation, but every human being from all the nations, we need spiritual liberation from the greater slavery of sin, death, and the devil. And we need freedom, not from temporary exile in Egypt, but rather we need freedom, you need freedom, and I do too, from eternal exile away from God. Now, whereas in the original Passover we had the death of a lamb that was combined with the death of the Egyptian firstborn, both serving to break the hold of oppression, set the people free. In the New Testament, listen, the Lamb and the firstborn is the same person. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb, first of all. In Exodus 12, we've just seen that the Passover Lamb had to be, what, young and male, and tamim, which meant whole, perfect, without blemish. Jesus Christ is the young, male, lamb without blemish or spot, according to 1 Peter 1.19. That is, Jesus is the tamim, blameless, perfect Lamb of God. He is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed, according to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. It says explicitly there, Jesus dies on the cross during what season? Passover season. According to Matthew 26, and according to John 18 and 19, 19, it was Passover season. When Jesus died on the cross, at the cross, 
we have all the accoutrements of Passover. We have hyssop that is used as the vehicle to offer sour wine to the bleeding lamb on the cross. John 19.29 Just as we had hyssop at the first Passover. At the cross, we also have blood pouring out from the side of the lamb. John 19.34 The blood that protects and covers us and sets us free. Just as blood had figured in so prominently with the original Passover lamb. And at the cross, we also have the lamb's bones unbroken. John 19.36 Which agrees with the unbroken bones of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12.46. At the cross, Jesus is the lamb slain. Revelation 5.6, the same Greek word that's used in the Greek version of Exodus 12.6 for the slain Passover lamb. The death of Jesus Christ is substitutionary in nature, just as it had been with the Passover lamb. Jesus dies, hallelujah, glory to God, in the place of sinners who deserved the death But Jesus saves people not merely from a plague of physical death, but he saves people from the horror of eternal death. Amen? Jesus is the all-glorious, divine Lamb of God. And whereas at the original Passover, Yahweh judged Egypt's gods, according to Exodus 12.12, in the New Testament, Jesus, the Lamb and the firstborn over all creation breaks the hold of the new Pharaoh, sin, death, and the devil, and the devil especially, and he makes a spectacle of the idols and powers at his cross. To, at his cross. to quote Colossians 2.15, listen, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, just as Yahweh in the Exodus judged Egypt's gods, Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. Jesus is our all-glorious, divine Passover lamb. I hope you're with me. He is the full-on word processor to the manual typewriter that was Passover. Jesus is the one whom John the Baptist announced as the Lamb of God who takes away Not merely the threat of the tenth plague in Egypt during Passover, but Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away, finish it with me, the sin of the world. And whereas in Exodus, the firstborn was protected by the death of the Lamb, in the New Testament, God does not protect his firstborn. Indeed, God demands the death of his firstborn. The firstborn of all creation. Where's Paul getting that from? He's getting it from Passover. He's a Pharisaic Jew. We read firstborn in Colossians. We shouldn't think in Greek categories. We should think Passover. Jesus is the firstborn over, not just the Hebrews, over all creation. 
He dies in order that sinners like you and I would be protected and saved. The Lamb of God and firstborn of creation deserves our highest praise this morning. Now, we began today by talking about the seam moment that Israel was living in between their slavery in Egypt and their journey toward the promised land. And it was Passover that occupied their seam moment. What about you? Do you see yourself, believer, as living in a seam moment of your own? Living your own Passover moment, as it were, awaiting what? The final freedom that is coming for you. What's coming? What's coming is this. Nothing short of the final glorious freedom from the old age of sin, death, and the devil, the new creation in New Jerusalem. How are you occupying your seam moment? Three exhortations and then I'm done. Having had the blood of the Lamb applied in your life, believer, knowing as you do, believer, that the blood of Jesus the Lamb spares you from eternal death and from eternal wrath, Here's my first exhortation. Make every effort in your seam moment to kill and decimate the old life in the flesh. Like the Israelites purged leaven from their homes during Passover. Kill off sin in your life in the power that he supplies. To use the old term that the the Puritans love to use, mortify. Sin in your life. Strive for holiness, as Hebrews 12.14 says, without which no one will see the Lord. Second, in your seam moment, be sure to obey the Lamb's command, the firstborn's command, to feast regularly on his body and his blood, like we did this morning. Our Passover feast as Christians is the Lord's table. If you have to miss church... I know that some of you do. Try your utmost to be here on the fourth Sunday of every month when we share communion. If there's only one Sunday you can get to, make it communion Sunday. At the Lord's table, we feast on symbolic representations of the Lamb's body and blood, and we do it in the presence of the crucified Lamb of God who is risen, firstborn, and coming himself later on. That meal is sustenance for us in our journey. Finally, believer, live an Exodus 12 existence. That is, make sure your belt's fastened, that you're prepared for departure at any moment, but also cognizant that there may be miles yet to go in the journey, The journey may be a hard journey. Be prepared. The final exodus, and I'm going to leave you with this, it's coming. The new Pharaoh, the devil, has been soundly defeated by Christ our Passover lamb, protected by the blood of the lamb. May each of us purge out the leaven of sin in the power that he supplies. May each of us take pains to keep the holy feast be nourished regularly by the body and blood, and may we be ever prepared for our final departure from this old age of sin, death, and the devil. Amen. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, is our prayer.
I want to make a brief announcement before I pray, and then um, we'll continue at the tail end of our service. Right after the closing song and benediction, uh, myself and a couple of the deacons are going to be gathered at the front here uh, for prayer. So if you would like to come forward for prayer, we will make ourselves available for you. Let's uh, pray, and then I'll hand it over to June. Our Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. Uh, Not only is it written on a page, Lord, but it interprets us. It interprets our world. It shows the history of where you have brought this world into being and where the world is going. We praise you that we have the entire purpose and plan of history laid out for us there. May we live into holiness this week for your name's sake. We ask the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.